Before I open with prayer this morning, I need to ask for one volunteer to go to the nursery. We need one volunteer in the nursery. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so merciful and good to us. And Lord, we thank you for both the example of Joseph that we will see in the passage before us. We thank you for what this text shows us about what it means to walk with you, to experience your presence, your favor, your blessing. And Lord, we also thank you for the way that what Joseph endured was a foreshadowing, prefiguring type of what Christ would accomplish. The way that he would be betrayed by his brothers, handed over to foreigners, and then suffer before being exalted. Lord, we pray that through this time that we have together in your word, you would establish yourself as God to us. That we would be under no illusions about where joy is to be found, where satisfaction, where gratification or influence or power or wealth. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to know you as the, the giver of every good gift, the one who satisfies all our desires, the one who heals all our diseases and who can make everything that we do to prosper. Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us by your steadfast love and make us glad that we might rejoice in you all our days. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 39, where we pick up the story uh, where it was left off at the end of Genesis 37, with Joseph having been sold into slavery. And last week, we had a kind of interlude as we saw what was going on with Judah at the same time that these events were happening with Joseph. And before we actually look at Genesis 39, I want to read to you the words of Psalm 105, uh, verses 16 through 18. So this is the psalmist's reflection upon what God was doing with Joseph being sold as a slave into Egypt. And the psalmist writes this in Psalm 105, 16. When he, that's the Lord, summoned a famine on the land. And so in coming chapters, we're going to see that there's a famine in the land of promise. And, and Jacob and his sons are going to have nothing to eat. And so they're going to go down into Egypt to buy grain. And the psalmist says, when he had summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. And this is telling us that as Joseph's brothers have betrayed him and sold him into slavery, God was sending Joseph ahead of them. So there, there's the human purpose. We're going to get rid of this guy. We're going to profit by selling him into slavery. We're going to benefit from exacting our 
our vengeance upon this brother whom we hate so much that we cannot speak peaceably to him. They're doing that, and God is saying, I'm going to prepare a way to keep these people alive. And I'm going I'm to send Joseph into Egypt to prepare for when they can get bread from him. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. And then listen to these words, which, by the way, that word slave there, he was sold as a slave, is this Hebrew term eved, which is sometimes also rendered servant. And we'll see that term servant show up in our passage today. Uh, that's the term, that term servant is the term that's used in the book of Isaiah when we, when we read about uh, this suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And it's, it's the servant that David uses of, his, of himself in Psalm 18 when he speaks of himself as the Eved Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. So it's a very significant term. Joseph, who was sold as an Eved, a slave or a servant. And then verse 18. And, and here, I would just invite you before I read this verse to think about how you would respond if you realized that as you were being hauled up out of this pit, your brothers were about to receive money in exchange for which they were going to hand over your person. And, and you were going to be enslaved and forcibly taken away from your homeland. How would you react? I would expect many of you, maybe most, maybe all, to resist I would expect you to try to keep this from happening. I would expect you to try to fight back, to try to get free of their grasp. And Psalm 105, 18 says, His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. And this verse shows us that this was no gentle transaction. This was no kind exchange of cash for Joseph, these guys clapped fetters on him to restrain him. They put an iron collar around his neck to keep him from being able to get away. They probably had to beat him into submission. They probably were not concerned to treat him gently. As long as the property arrives alive and able to work, we're satisfied. But whatever we need to do to subdue him to make it so that he submits and comes peaceably, that's what we'll do. So as we turn to Genesis 39, I want to address right out of the gate the way that our culture thinks about these things. So if you, let's just look at Genesis 39, verse 1. And then in these first six verses, we'll have our first... Our first unit of text with Joseph as a slave in Egypt. And look at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And what I'm telling you is that that was not uh, a kind of peaceful, kind, happy voyage. No, I think that Joseph uh, was probably along the way thinking, how do I get out of this situation? How do I get my freedom back? Is there any way for me to get these chains off my feet and off my neck? Is there any way for me to break these bonds? Isn't that what you'd be thinking? If I can escape from these guys, maybe I can find a way back to my father who loves me. And think about, think about the transition that has happened in Joseph's life. He was the honored, beloved son with the coat of many colors. He was the man of standing among his brothers. 
He had been having these dreams about how his mother and his father and his brothers were all going to come and bow down to him. And his father had been sending him on the, the trusted mission, go check on your brothers. Joseph goes from being this man of high standing to now he is a slave in fetters with an iron collar around his neck, probably bruised and perhaps even broken bones, we don't know, but not kindly, gently, honorably treated. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and then he's, he's brought into the slave market. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. In dignity, in humanity, he is not treated with any kind of respect. He is treated like a commodity. And before I read the next verse, I just want to observe that there, there is a, a way of viewing the world in our culture that, is, that it, it goes by various names, you know, people refer to this as critical race theory and, and whatever. That worldview, that worldview views the, the horrific tragedy of American slavery, slavery in the American South prior to the Civil War, as a kind of original sin and as a stain on our nation. And it views it as that this worldview views that reality, the fact that slavery was here and the way it was practiced and so forth, as I think it's safe to say, the worst possible thing that could happen to someone. And along with this idea that the worst possible thing that you could do to someone is treat them the way that Africans who were enslaved were treated in this country, along with that that whole view, way of viewing the world is the idea that the best thing that can happen to you is for you to have wealth and power, okay? And I just want to submit to you that this is a very worldly way of looking at life. That the best thing is to have lots of money and lots of power and lots of influence and the worst thing is to be enslaved. I want, to, I want to submit to you that is a very worldly way of looking at the world, and here's why. Look at the very next verse. Look at verse 2. The Lord, and you'll notice you got those small caps. The R is an, it's a capital R, but it's squashed. It's a small cap. That's Yahweh. It says Yahweh was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Now, I'm going to say more about this word successful in just a moment. What I want to say right here is, I want, to, I want to ask you a question. What is worse than being enslaved in Egypt? What is worse than being betrayed by your brothers, than being separated, forcibly separated from your father who loves you and your brother Benjamin? What is worse than being sold into slavery, and we're going to see as this passage continues, falsely accused and then imprisoned? As, as all of which is going to happen to Joseph here. What's, you know what's worse than that? What's worse than that is to be Pharaoh and be without God and without hope in the world. What is worse than that? What's worse than that is to be Potiphar and to have all this wealth and to be without hope and without God in the world. What's worse than that is to be Judah and to have the money and to think, Oh, the best thing I can do with this money is buy a prostitute and to be without hope 
and without God in the world. Now, we saw last week, I think Judah gets converted. Praise the Lord. So it no longer applies to him. But what's worse, what's worse than slavery is to be without God. To not know the presence and blessing of God. So you know what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to turn your thinking upside down. I'm challenging you to turn the world upside down in your thinking. And to get it in your head that it would be better to be a slave whom God is blessing, whom God is causing to succeed and prosper than to be the Lord of all of Egypt and to not know God. If you know God, if God is with you and God is blessing you, look at the next verse. Verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph and he became a a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And it just goes on, verse 4. Joseph found favor in his sight. And then in verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. If you know God, if you are right with God by faith, if you have been reconciled to the living God because you've repented of your sin and put your hope and faith in Jesus, the blessing of God is with you. Jesus said to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to send another comforter. He'll be with you forever. He he is with you. He'll be in you. If all these things are true of you, if it is true of you that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, they can put you in slavery. They can put you in prison. They can falsely accuse you. The world can do whatever it wants to you. And it'll be like them trying to throw Daniel into the lion's den. And the flames don't consume you. That's the fiery furnace. The lion's den. The lions don't eat you. And if they do eat you, you'll die like those Christians saying, Lord, have mercy on them. They know not what they're doing. Better to be a slave who knows God than to be the Lord of Egypt and and separated from God, and having no hope in the world. Now, this word, successful, the Lord was with Joseph, verse 2, which, incidentally, I don't know that we've read anything like this to this point in the, in the book of Genesis. As I, was, as I was thinking about this, I can't recall a place where we read that the Lord was with someone, but we do have, all the way back in Genesis 3, 8, the Lord walking with Uh, man in the cool of the day. So I want to submit this to you. Joseph, enslaved, taken out of the land of promise, down into Egypt, symbolically taken out of the realm of life into the unclean realm of the dead. Joseph, enslaved in Egypt, has the best thing there is to have about the Garden of Eden. The best thing there is to have about the Garden of Eden is the presence of God, the blessing of God, the favor of God. You could live in Eden and be separated from God and without hope in the world, and you know where you'd live? In hell. That's where you'd live. You'd be dissatisfied. You'd be discontented. You would would have, as Paul says in one place, a continual lust for more with, with the fullness of satisfaction around you. 
Joseph in slavery in Egypt has the best thing there is to have about Eden. Now, listen, I'm not commending slavery, okay? I'm not justifying slavery. I'm not saying I want to be enslaved. I'm not saying slavery is a happy place to live. What I'm saying is no matter what you endure, no matter what your circumstances are, if God is with you, you can rejoice. If God is with you and God blesses you, you have everything that you need. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. That word, he became a that, that word successful there is a really significant word in the Bible. It occurs back in Genesis 24 with reference to Abraham's servant. The Lord, Abraham sends that servant to go get uh, Isaac a wife, and the Lord makes his journey successful, or he prospers his journey. It, this word is going to be used here in verse 2, again in verse 3, and then again in verse 23 later in the chapter. Uh, it, it's used all over the Bible. I just want to highlight a couple of instances of it for you. Um, first, listen to Numbers 14.41. Numbers 14.41, this is where um, the people, the spies have brought back the bad report, and then uh, after Moses... Um, intercedes for them and saves their lives, and they decide, oh, actually, we do want to go try to take the land. And Moses tells them, you can't do that. that so they say in Numbers 14, verse 40, um, they say, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And you know, the Lord has already said, this whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. And Moses responds to them. He says, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you. Okay? The Lord was with Joseph. Now Moses is saying to the people of Israel, the Lord is not with you. The Lord is not among you. And then he says, he says, um, I'm sorry, that was, that's verse 42. Verse 41 is one I want. Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? That's the word, that, that have success word. Why are you transgressing against the Lord when that will not succeed? succeed. And, and all through the Bible, there is this association between the Word of God and your embrace of it and you having success and you transgressing the Bible and not succeeding. That is a consistent usage of this term all through the Bible. And here, as I said in verse 42, the, Moses says, don't go up. The Lord is not among you. He's not with you. Listen to uh, Deuteronomy Chapter 28, verse 29. This is in the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Moses tells the people here if they, that if they, if they don't obey the word of God, he says to them, you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. That's our word. You shall not prosper. This is the term that's used in Joshua 1, verse 8. I hope you've memorized this verse. The, the people say to Joshua, do, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Then you will have good success. There's our word. And then you will be prosperous. The word and prosperity. The, the, the Bible's kind of prosperity. I'm not talking health, wealth, gospel, right? Joseph's in slavery, right? No health, wealth, prosperity preacher is going to tell you you will prosper in slavery. That's not the way they talk. The true message is, even if you're enslaved, 
even if you're not making a lot of money, even if in the world's estimation you seem to have no influence, if you're walking in obedience to the Lord, if you're trusting him by faith, if you are embracing his word, if you are delighting in his, you're prospering. That's the reality. That, that's what the Bible is telling you. And this is where the Proverbs come in and they say things like, better is a dry morsel than a house full of feasting with strife. Better to have just a little bit and be content and be right with God than to have everything and be at enmity with God. Uh, listen to what David tells Solomon in 2 Chronicles. Let me get to this. 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 11 and following. David says, now my son, the Lord be with you. There's that component again. So that you may succeed. There's our word in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion. This is, this, if this is going to sound like Proverbs to you, that's because this is the wisdom that, that David is imparting to Solomon. The Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the Torah of Yahweh your God, the law of, of Yahweh, the Bible. And then verse 13, then you will prosper. Then you will prosper. There's our word again. Success, prosperity, according to the Bible, comes from the Bible. It comes from the scriptures. And thus, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh. And on his Torah, he meditates day and night. And then it goes on. Whatever he does, he prospers. And there's our word. So now Joseph is living at a time when it's long before Moses. Moses hasn't yet written the Pentateuch, and no other biblical authors, as far as we know, have written anything in Joseph's day. But here's what I would suggest to you. I would suggest to you that Joseph has learned the promises. And I would suggest to you that Joseph knows the stories that are later going to be incorporated by Moses into the Pentateuch. And, and I think from what we're going to see in this chapter, Joseph is doing everything he can to fix his heart and mind on who God is and what God has revealed and what God has done. That's what he's filling his head with, and he's walking in accordance with that. He's living in accordance with what he's learned about God. So I would submit to you that even though the Bible doesn't exist in Joseph's day, he's essentially meditating on what's in the Bible day and night. And everything that he does prospers, just like Psalm 1 says. So verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him. And that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Notice that. This is not just Joseph is a very self-disciplined, conscientious, observant, strategic thinker. Although I'm sure all of that is true. All of that is true. It's also, look at the words there in verse 3, Yahweh caused, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. This is God actively at work in the world blessing Joseph's endeavors. 
And I, I feel no shame and I have no compunction in saying, you ought to want to be like Joseph. You ought to want to be like Joseph. I don't think probably anybody in this room is going to be sold into slavery. I hope not. But I suspect everybody in this room is going to be afflicted in various ways. We're all going to be, we're all going to be confronted with various forms of injustice. And this is how we want to respond. We want to be people who are filling our heads with the scriptures, who are conscious of God, and who are recognizing if my, if my endeavors are going to succeed, the best way for them to succeed is if God causes them to succeed. So that's what I'm crying out for. Verse 4. Now, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity in verses 3 and 4. Notice how the, the uh, subject the, or the referent of the pronoun, like he and his, is not explicitly articulated. And I think there's an intended ambiguity here. So at the end of verse 3, we, we see there, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight. In whose sight? Well, I think there's intended ambiguity. Joseph is clearly finding favor or grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Why? Because he's walking in the fear of Yahweh. Because he's, I would submit to you, uh, on the on on the basis of the usage of this terminology later in the Bible, Joseph is meditating on the stories and he's meditating on what God has revealed. He's, that's what he's filling his head with. And he's finding favor in God's sight. But also, he's finding favor in Potiphar's sight. And this perhaps makes you think about somebody who grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I think Joseph, Joseph is like a preview of the Lord Jesus Joseph found favor in his sight and, in this word, attended in the ESV, you could render that ministered to him. And, and again, I think there's intended ambiguity because on the one hand, Joseph is serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord. On the other hand, yeah, he's, he's probably something like Potiphar's butler, Potiphar's right-hand man, Potiphar's uh, personal servant. And, at the end of verse 4, in the middle of verse 4, he made him overseer of his house. Again, who made him overseer? Well, um, you know, at one level, Potiphar did that. At another level, it was the Lord that caused everything that Joseph did to succeed. And so, at that level, it was the Lord who made Joseph overseer in Potiphar's house. And then again in verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And if you've been here and we've worked through Genesis together, I hope that the inner biblical connections are just ringing in your head. And I hope you're, you're hearing, echoing in your mind the words of Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. What we're seeing here is the outworking of the blessing of Abraham. Joseph, th think about what's happening here. Joseph is being gradually put in position to be exalted over all of Egypt as the seemingly dead and yet, in reality, alive descendant of Abraham through whom the nations, all the nations, are going to be blessed. Because we're going to read that all the families of the earth are going to come and buy grain from Egypt. And in that regard, Joseph anticipates the one through whom the nations 
will be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in house and in field. And I suspect that what's happening here is Joseph is treating everybody in Potiphar's operation like they're an image bearer of the living God. He's treating everybody with respect. And he's also working in, in, in line with the whole idea that God made the world. This is God's world. And, and he's, he's trying to, to bring to bear everything that he knows about how God has made the world, about what this place is, what it's for. He's trying to bring everything that, that Potiphar is, is up to into line with those realities. He's living out his worldview is what he's doing. And as a result... The blessing of God is resting on it in the house and in the field. So, verse 6, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So, that that first section in verses 1 through 6 there, what we see is the Lord with Joseph in slavery. And I just want to reiterate the big application point that I hope we all take from this. I hope we all will embrace this otherworldly perspective. In other words, this is not the world's perspective. Here it is. Power and wealth. Okay, so there is a worldview out there that says, if we don't have power, we are being wronged. If we don't have wealth, it's evidence that we are being wronged. Okay, that's a, that's a worldly perspective. And and what I'm suggesting the Bible is teaching here is that power and wealth are less valuable and influential. Okay? Uh, Wealth, value, power, influence. Power and wealth are less valuable and influential than God's presence and blessing. And if you're somebody that embraces the teaching of the Bible... I hope, I hope you're embracing this idea that what people really need, whatever their circumstances, whatever their income level, whatever the, the amount of, of familial inherited wealth they may or may not have received, whatever their uh, level of authority in the hierarchies of the world, whatever, that's, all, that's not ultimately what's going to give them what they're seeking. The only thing that's going to give them what they're seeking is going to be the presence of of God and the blessing of God. And the only way for them to experience that is for them to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Power and wealth are less valuable and influential than God's presence and blessing. We see Joseph live out his worldview in this next episode in verses 7 through 10 where he resists temptation. So at the end of verse 6, we read that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And uh, the terminology here is almost exactly like the description of Rachel earlier in the book. And, you know, it was through um, Rachel that um, um, uh, Jacob's favored uh, children were born, including Joseph. And um, then later in the Bible, the same terminology is also going to be used with reference to David, where where it's, it's really kind of paradoxical. On the one hand, uh, David is so unimpressive 
that when Samuel shows up to anoint one of his sons as king, uh, Jesse doesn't even bother summoning David in from the flock, you know? All the sons of, of, of Jesse pass before Samuel, and, and Samuel says, the Lord hasn't chosen any of the... You must have another son somewhere. And, well, there's the runt out in the flock. But then when they bring him in, you know, he's described much like Joseph is here, that he's, he's ruddy and, and handsome in appearance. And then also, interestingly, Esther is going to be described with almost the exact same terminology, which is interesting because in the same way that Joseph is in a foreign land and he's going to be exalted to the right hand of power, Esther is in a foreign land and she's going to be exalted to the right hand of power to deliver the people of Israel, much like Joseph. Verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife, this is Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. Now, I think that, again, if we go to, the, if we go to our culture's worldview, the worldview in our culture, there is no way to explain this refusal. And, and it's really even hard for us to get, around, get our, eyes, our heads around how he could have resisted this, this temptation. Why would he do it? How would he do it? Why and how would he resist this temptation? Well, most of you are, I think, believers in the Lord Jesus. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you're not a Christian, the why part goes back to what the Bible teaches us about what humans are and what uh, human um, um, marital relations, delicate way to say that, are for. They're, they're, they're ultimately for two people in a covenant of marriage to procreate and to experience intimacy with one another. That's what this is all for. And so if you, if you want to learn more about what we Christians believe, we'd love to share all this with you. Please come talk to us afterwards. I'm going to take it for granted that most of us here understand the why part. How? How was Joseph able to resist this temptation? Well, look at what he says here. He says... Um, uh, we see there in verse 8, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying, my master trusts me. My master trusts me to the point that he has put everything under my authority. So there are two pieces here that, that are enabling Joseph to resist the temptation. The first is, he doesn't want to wrong Potiphar. The second is, he does not want to abuse his trust. He's seeking to be faithful. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. And then he says in verse 9, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor is he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And there, what we see is Joseph not wanting to violate marriage. Joseph understands what marriage is. And Joseph honors marriage. And because of that desire to honor marriage, he refuses this temptation. And then finally, this is the ground for all of it. He says at the end of verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God. This is wickedness 
ultimately because of who God is. What she wants to commit adultery with Joseph is wickedness because that's not what God created these kinds of interactions and this kind of intimacy for. And so Joseph does not want it. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. I want to read to you a bit from um, just a few statements from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, because of the way that what Truman says here explains the mindset that, that is at work in our culture. The mindset that we see lived out on television, enacted in the commercials, displayed on the billboards, sung about on the radio. If you listen to secular music, this is the mindset that you're hearing, okay? So, and, and, and probably, I suspect, to some degree, this way of thinking has crept into all of our thinking. And we're all, we, we're all in need of the ability, the rationale, and the the why and the how of resisting this mindset. Here it is. Uh, Truman writes that for, for, um, uh, for Freud, listen to this, the goal of human existence was to be happy. But Freud gave this idea of happiness a specifically sexual turn in identifying it with genital pleasure. I'm sorry to use that language. But basically what he's saying is that is the summit of human happiness. That is what it mean, means to be happy. And then Truman explains this move of, of identifying that genital pleasure as the peak of human happiness, this move is obviously of huge consequence for the understanding of key aspects of our present-day culture where sexual satisfaction is promoted as one of the key components of what it means to be living the good life. In other words, if you are not experiencing that kind of pleasure, you are not experiencing the good life. If that's your worldview, Joseph's resistance of temptation is not going to make any sense to you. And you're going to think, well, he did the wrong thing. He should have indulged. Um, Truman goes on. He says, Freud provided a compelling rationale for putting sex and sexual expression at the center of human existence. And this is why what is sacrosanct in our culture is somebody's sexual preference, somebody's sexual desire. This is why what is sacrosanct in our culture is if, if you're a man and you desire other men, well, that should be affirmed. If you're a man and you think you're a woman on the inside, well, that should be affirmed because, because the essence of who you are as a human being and the summit of your ability to be happy as a human being is identified with your, your ability to be sexually stimulated. Truman writes that Freud has provided the West with a compelling myth. The myth is the idea that sex, in terms of sexual desire and sexual fulfillment, is the real key to human existence, to what it means to be human. If you think that way, or if you detect to any degree that you have begun to think that way, that that, that, that thinking has, has crept in without you even conceptualizing the thoughts, it will be really hard for you to resist temptation. It'll be really hard for you to, to justify not looking at things that you don't need to be looking at. It'll be really hard for you to justify seeking accountability with people to keep you from doing things that you don't need to be doing. 
hard to the point of impossible if that's the way you're thinking about things. Final quote here from Truman. He says that for these, for these thinkers, for what Freud initiated leads to the idea that, quote, the purpose of life and the content of the good life is personal sexual fulfillment. This principle also reorients thinking on the purpose of sex. The purpose of procreation is subordinated to the purpose of personal pleasure. And here again, what we see in the Bible takes that worldly view and it turns it upside down. Because what Joseph is living out here is the idea that sexual gratification, genital pleasure, is less valuable than not offending God. For Joseph, he, he knows God. And so he sees that God is more to be desired. It is more to be desired to walk with God, to experience God's presence, to enjoy God's blessing. All of that is better than gratifying his desires. And here, I just want to read you a few statements from the book of Proverbs because my, my hope and prayer is that what we see Joseph do here, we would be able to imitate him because we've embraced the why and we've come to understand the how. We know what humans are for, we know what sex is for, we know what those pleasures are about, and we also know how to keep them in the right place. So listen to what, what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 2, in, starting in verse 6. He says, The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. And then listen to these next words in Proverbs 2, verse 7. He, that is the Lord, is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Can you imagine better protection than the Almighty God? Can there be anything that would better defend you than the living God himself? He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And then listen to this. Guarding the paths of justice. Guarding their paths. Now think about Joseph. He's about 17 years old. He has probably been beaten. He has, he has been physically, roughly handled. He has been forcibly removed from his homeland and from whoever it was who was teaching him these traditions. And he has been taken into a situation where nobody thinks like he thinks. Nobody believes what he believes about God, about life, about morality. Nobody, nobody believes the way Joseph believes in Potiphar's house. And there he is being protected by the living God. That's beautiful. The, the text goes on. He, Solomon says here in verse 9, then it, so if the Lord gives you wisdom, 2.6, 2.9, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. You'll be protected by discretion. Understanding will guard you. This is what's guarding Joseph. Discretion, understanding, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. And then a few verses later, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. What delivered Joseph? God protecting him. 
and, and God's wisdom coming into his heart and protecting him in these ways is what delivered him from these temptations. Verse 11, we're now going to see him falsely accused. Genesis 39, uh, sorry, I've got, I've got a little bit more here. Verse 10, as, he spoke to Joseph, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. It seems that this lie beside her business was perhaps her attempt to ultimately get him to consummate an adulterous interaction by first, well, just come be with me. And then once you're with me for a little while, why don't you just come lie down beside me? And Joseph will have none of it. He doesn't want to lie beside her. He doesn't want to be with her. He's seeking, he's seeking to be righteous. He's fleeing youthful lusts. 39.11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See? Now, what's happening here is a false accusation, is what's happening. Joseph has righteously resisted temptation, and now this, this wife of Potiphar is going to start telling lies about him. Middle of verse 14. She first starts in on her husband. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. There's a little bit of irony there because that's Isaac's name. He's brought this Hebrew in here to Isaac us. And I think that Moses is sort of with a twinkle in his eye saying, yes, the Lord has brought this Hebrew down here to, to make the blessing of Abraham come to pass, even in your household, even as you make these false accusations against him. He came into me to lie with me, which is not true. And I cried with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard, verse 15, that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. So first she tells the other people in the house, and then Potiphar gets home, verse 17, and she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me, to Isaac me again. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And um, what we learn about Joseph here is that Joseph fears God more than he fears false accusation. Joseph has acted in integrity. And Joseph is willing to act in his integrity whatever the false accusations may come. He, we don't see him pursuing any kind of underhanded or behind the scenes or uh, somehow deceitful or uh, subversive course to try to get back at Potiphar's wife or to shut her. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything that he probably has within his power to do, to somehow put pressure on her, to make her not tell this story, or to threaten her. He doesn't do any of those things. He does what Peter describes the Lord Jesus doing when injustice came upon him. He's entrusting himself to a faithful creator. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way that your servant treated me. There's that word servant. Uh, Joseph is an eved, and he is uh, faithful, and he's been betrayed by his brothers, and he's been falsely accused, and now things are just going to get worse for him. This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. Verse 20, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined 
and he was there in prison. This is probably not a clean place. Probably not a place where Joseph could, you know, bathe himself or take care of his needs in a dignified way. Probably not a place that smelled very, very good. Certainly not a place where there were good influences to speak the truth into his life or to keep him from being tempted to pursue evil and wicked courses. And even here, look at the next verse, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And I submit to you again, better to be falsely accused and be wrongly imprisoned and have the Lord with you than to be Potiphar and not know God and be free with all of your wealth and influence and power at your disposal. The Lord was with Joseph. And then look at the next words in verse 21. And showed him steadfast love. That's the Lord's hesed. This is, this is the love that God puts upon his people. Um, in Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells Israel, The Lord your God set his love on your fathers and chose them. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that in love he predestined us and chose us. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love. And then here's this again, and gave him favor, this is grace, in the sight of the keeper of the prison. If this sounds just like those verses back up in 2 and 3, that's because it's the same language, same things happening. Verse 22, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Joseph was. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. This is just like Potiphar, not paying attention to anything except the food that he eats because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Just a, a couple of statements from Psalm 119 that I think accurately describe Joseph's response to this injustice. Listen to Psalm 119, starting in verse 50, 153. Psalm 119, verse 153. The psalmist prays, Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. You see, the injustice happens, and the psalmist says, Lord, I'm looking to you to establish justice. I'm looking to you to plead my cause. And in Joseph's case, it's remarkable how as things get worse and worse, I mean, first he's sold into slavery, and now he's thrown into prison, the Lord is preparing for them to get better and better. Because after this, it's through this imprisonment that Joseph is going to be exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. And then it's through that that he's going to wind up reconciled to his brothers and his father, having provided for them. Joseph typifies the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, who was, as I've said, betrayed by his brothers, forcibly separated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
sold as a slave, falsely accused, imprisoned. And that suffering servant left us an example that we should follow in his steps, as Peter says. Let's pray together. Father, your word is sweeter to us than honey from the comb. Better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Better than access to the most influential politicians, Lord. Your word tells us the truth about what we need, about what will satisfy us, about how to get what we want. So, Lord, I pray that your people would hear the wisdom in your word and they would know that, that your wisdom is a tree of life to those who find it. That knowing you, that understanding your ways, that walking with you is like having the best part of the Garden of Eden, wherever we live, whoever we are, whatever we do, whatever our legal station may be. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who know you, people of whom it can be said, the Lord was with them and caused everything they did to prosper and blessed them. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whom all your promises are yes and amen. And we thank you, Father, for, for, for telling us that there is nothing that can separate us from your love in Christ, for guaranteeing by your own character that you are working everything together for our good. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us increasingly to understand the why of resisting sexual temptation and also the how. Lord, make it so for us that we value you and your presence and your blessing more than we value the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray that you would make his name great in our lives and that many would come to know him through us. Amen.